Uh, I often say, you know, I'm an audience participation preacher. We've been gathering around this theme of hunger, and, uh, you know, it's, I always say it's different when you come to the table hungry, right? It's different when you come to the table hungry, and uh, when you come to the table full and other things, and, you know, a plate's put in front of you, yeah. but when you're hungry, you can devour some stuff. You ready to devour some stuff today? So I'm going to continue this morning as, as what we talked about Friday night. I'm going to continue talking about spiritual hunger and, and being in pursuit of God. So if you have a Bible this morning, if you'd open it to Psalm 63, I, I want to talk to you just for a few minutes on this subject of hungering for God. And, you know, the Lord put it on my spirit, but maybe it's just because, you know, we're gathering around Thanksgiving and we're meal prepping and we're thinking about all of our favorite dishes and all of that stuff. And I know, I don't know about your house, but for me, the hardest part of, of Thanksgiving is staying hungry because all day when the turkey's in the oven and it's smelling good and the food's being prepped, you know what happens. You, you pick a little here, a little there. Uh, you know, you eat a deviled egg over here, maybe six over there. <clears throat> and uh, before you know it, the meal's ready and you're, you're, you're pretty much full. And uh, I looked up this, this phrasing of spiritual hunger online, and I thought it was interesting in what it said. It said, spiritual hunger is feeling deprived of a sense of purpose, passion, pleasure, or joy in one's life. I'm going to say that again because I think it's completely wrong. Spiritual hunger is a feeling of being deprived of a sense of purpose, passion, pleasure, or joy in one's life. I don't know who wrote it, but somebody did, and I think they're flat wrong. Because I don't think spiritual hunger, being hungry for God, means that we are living in a place of without. Come on, somebody. I don't believe that it means that we are living in a place or a, a season where we've lost our passion or our pleasure or the joy in our life. I think it's the exact opposite. That typically, if you are in a space or a season where you've lost your sense of purpose, passion, pleasure, or joy, it's typically because you are hungry for the presence of God, but you're filling it maybe with other things. What I have discovered is that we are always hungry. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I'm always hungry. That's not the issue. The issue is whether I'm feeding on the right things or the wrong things. Right things will lead me to a life that I enjoy, that I love, that you know, is long, that is prosperous, that's fruitful, that will give me strength. Feasting on the wrong things will always leave me dissatisfied, empty, and broken. So I don't think it's a matter of whether we're hungry or not. I think it's a matter of whether we're feeding that hunger with the right things. I'm getting ahead of myself. So I want to look today at Psalm 63, verse 1 through 9. And this is the words of the psalmist David. And I think it's very interesting what David writes here. Listen to his words. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. 
And in your name, I will lift up my hands and I will be, listen to this, fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing my lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Many of you probably have heard this psalm before. It's very popular. It's a popular one to quote, to post on social media. But I, I think on a general gl- scanning of it, if we're not careful, we can actually miss the weight and the significance of what David is writing here because it's actually very deep. But I think to get the weight of it, we have to understand what he's facing while he's penning these words. Often when you read the Psalms, you see at the top of the Psalms, it'll say a Psalm of David um, and give a little bit more explanation or, or some of them actually say a, a Psalm of Moses or, uh, you know, it's kind of the title, uh, the heading over it. And it gives a little bit of, of context of what's happening in that particular Psalm. And if you look at this Psalm, the, the heading over it says a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Now that gives us a little bit of a clue, but not everything. So I want you to look at verse 9 in that same verse, that same scripture. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. So what is he writing here? In other words, he's saying that once again, he's on the run. And if you look at biblical history, David's not just running from anybody. And right away, what comes to my mind is, oh, probably Saul, because we know that, you know, David spent many years running from his father-in-law, Saul, and he sought to kill him. And, you know, a lot of times we forget that that's not the only time that David was on the run, right? I mean, this is from the psalmist. And I don't know, it just hit me a little bit different today because just, I, I know I've read it, but in my mind, I think, well, you know, he went through that Saul season and then he became king. And I know he went through some hardships because he sinned with Bathsheba, but, but you know, he was king and it was all good. But actually, where we find ourselves is he's now on the run from his son, Absalom. That the psalmist, after coming through all he went through, now finds himself on the run again. Come on, am I preaching to anybody who you thought that season was over? You thought it was finished. You thought it would never show up again. But now you find yourself in a season again, and you're not sure why, and you're not sure how, and you're not sure what God's going to do about it. All right. We would see from Scripture that maybe Absalom is David's favorite son. Not supposed to have favorites, parents. But if you look at the Scripture, it would seem that David loved Absalom in a different kind of way. And I say that to say because I think his betrayal to David would have hurt all the more. Because he went behind David's back and dethroned him. And now David's on the run in the wilderness. So consider this for a moment. He's lost his throne. In a very practical sense, you could say that David's lost his family again. He's technically lost his job, what he was anointed to do. And he lost his home. And in the middle of that, 
And again, I, I want you to understand that now he's, he's on the run again. In the middle of thinking that that part of his life was behind him, in the middle of all of that chaos, that loss, what is his prayer? What's at the forefront of his cry to God? He says, I'm hungry for you. That's amazing to me. Because I put myself in this situation and I try to think of, you know, what would be at the top of my mind. I'd probably be pretty angry at God. Why did you let this happen to me? Why am I on the run again? Why are people always chasing me? God, revenge me, you know, destroy my enemies, change their hearts, give me my life back. That's the kind of stuff, if I'm honest, that would be on the top of my prayer list. Right? But what David understands and what I want us to understand today is that what he needed the most was God. He understood that kingdoms come and kingdoms fall. People come and people go. Seasons, you know, to everything, there is a season under heaven. Seasons come, seasons go. But if I have the Lord, then I have enough. Even in his loss, in his confusion, in his bewilderment, in his pain, and in his sorrow, he kept his eyes on the focus that if I have God, then I have everything that I need to be satisfied. Oh, I didn't mean to preach to the American church this morning. Come on, somebody. But if all we have left is God, then we know we have enough. Come on, John Chris was doing a, a, I saw a clip of him doing a, a, a part of his comedian stand-up act, and he was talking about his sister-in-law, and, you know, he went to see her mini mansion, he called it, and, you know, in the kitchen she had a scripture that says, we are pressed but not crushed, persecuted and not destroyed, and he was just kind of painting the picture of, I don't know if you know what that scripture means. <laughs> But sometimes in the American church, you know, somebody didn't like us and we think we're being persecuted. And we have no, but it's our comfort that has made us lost to the reality that's he, that he's all we need. And then, can I dare say that God will never create a life for you that is so comfortable that it makes you not dependent on him? So could it be that the reason, you know, the, the, the stage gets pulled out from under you over and over again is because you keep looking at the platform as your substance, you keep looking at that person or that relationship or that job as your source, and God's saying, until you get past that and realize no person, no job, no platform, no title, no name, no amount of money is ever going to be enough, only I will be able to satisfy, and when you move that thinking into your heart, then suddenly God says, now I can expand your platform. But, and, and you see that as the fruit of David's life through his prayer. Not venge me, my enemies. Not plotting how do I scheme to get it back. He says, Lord, if I have you, then I have enough. He understands that what he needs most is God. So in the moment of his greatest vulnerability, of his greatest weakness... His greatest fear and sadness, he declares his hunger and dependence on God. He says, my God, my God, my soul faints for you. I'm so hungry for you. So where does hunger like that come from? Where does that level of focus and intentionality and desire for God come from? 
Where does that essence of saying, God, if I don't have you, I don't have anything, come from? And what, what cultivates that hunger? I want to look through this verse of scripture quickly today. I want to pull out four truths that are going to help you walk out practically David's prayer here. That gives us some insights to his spiritual life and the hunger that he had. So number one, if you're taking notes, hunger grows out of a de- decisive commitment. Hunger grows out of a decisive commitment. I want you to look at verse one. Listen to what he says. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, if you look at biblical language, David is actually using language of covenant here. Language of covenant. In other words, what I'm saying is in the Old Testament, God had established a covenant with a man called Abram, later to be changed to Abraham. And God made a very specific declaration to Abraham. And here's what it is in Genesis 17. Listen, he said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, speaking of Abram, and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Listen, and I will be their God. So God, with, Abraham, with, excuse me, with David's forefather, is making a covenant that says, I will be your God. This is speaking in the line of the Jewish people. I'm not preaching about that today, but he said he would still be their God for generation after generation, and the land they dwell is theirs forever. We just read that, right? So just settle that. All right, moving on. But in this covenant, he says, I will be your God. He's stating his terms of the agreement. So when David is praying this prayer, what does he say back to God? He says, oh God, you are my God. He could have said, you are the God of my forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you you are their God, the God of yesteryear, the God who has gone before me, the God who brought Moses out, the God who parted the Red Sea. He could have made a whole list of all the things, but no, he made God personal, and he said, God, I'm going to lean into the covenant, and I'm going to make a decisive uh, decision today that you're just not the God of my forefathers, but you are my God. He echoes back the words of the covenant and says, you are my God. How many of us today can say we have really leaned in to he's my God, my God, mine, my Lord. He made it a commitment right there. And he says, from this moment forward, this is what my life is about. My life is about you. You're my God. You're my aim. You're my focus. You're what I'm about. And out of that will always produce hunger. A commitment like that always produces hunger. Makes me think about an 18-year-old Jonathan Edwards. He was a preacher in the first great awakening. Writing hundreds of years ago, he tells us 
about the moment where he made a commitment to hunger solely after God. And he wrote this on January 12, 1723. Listen to what he said. I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and wrote it down. Giving up myself and all that I had to God. To be for the future in no respect my own. To act as one who had no right to himself in any respect. And solemnly vow to take God for my whole portion. Looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness. Nor acting as it were. And his law shall rule my obedience, engaging to fight, listen to this, with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I don't know about you, but that kind of stirs my blood a little bit. Kind of stirs me to passion. Kind of makes me hungry for more. Why? Because that kind of commitment and decision will always produce hunger. God, you dictate my schedule. You have my life. We have to have such a hunger and desire for God that it outweighs our desire for comfort. I'm going to say that again. We have to have such a hunger for God that it outweighs our desire for comfort. Whatever happened to we are a soldier in the army of the Lord? Whatever happened to he's our Lord and we are at his will? Why are the churches empty when it comes time for prayer meetings? Is it because we have desired comfort more than sacrifice? Can I tell you, you will never see the fulfillment of what God wants in your life as long as you're wanting to stay comfortable. It always comes on the back of those who are willing to sacrifice their own personal happiness and comfort to see the plan and will of God accomplished in the earth. You want to see your children turned around? It won't come from sitting back in your rocking chair and just maybe hoping so because you said a prayer somewhere. It comes from the mothers who lock themselves in a prayer room and won't come out because they're crying and weeping and pleading to God that he would save their children's soul, that they would not be lost to a damned eternity forever, but that he would somehow reach them and find them and bring them back. It always comes on the back of somebody who said, I know this makes me uncomfortable. I know this makes me radical. I know this makes me strange and different but lives are at the stake lives for eternity will be at the stake with what I do so if I'm more concerned about my comfort then I have limited what God can do and will do in my life as a church if we are more concerned with our other schedules and our other things and programs and forsake prayer and forsake fasting and forsake coming together as the Lord has commanded and we forfeit the right to see him do in our church and in our city and our world what he wants to do. I know this is heavy this morning. I don't apologize, but I'm just acknowledging that it is. There's something about when you just make that commitment verbally. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. Parents, 
when you sit with your children, and I've, I just had to have that conversation recently with my son, Jeremiah, because, you know, he's at that age where, you know, we're starting to question, well, how comes they get to do this? Or, you know, other people are saying bad words and we're not. Well, because this is what we're about. It's for me and my house, we're going to serve Jesus. We're going to follow the Lord. We're going to live right. We're going to you know, trust God. We're going to offer our lives to him. There's something about when you make that statement as a family, when you just even, you know, you crafters make a board that says, you know, on this date, we have determined that, you know, our house will serve the Lord. There's something about that. From this day forward, this is who we are. We're God people. We're Holy Ghost people. We're spirit-filled people. Amen. Not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody's going to want to rub elbows, and that's all right. Because God gave us back at Genesis the right of choice. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So hunger always grows out of a commitment. But lack of commitment is where hunger stops. Number two, if you're taking notes, hunger is fueled by time in God's presence. Hunger is fueled by time in God's presence. Psalm 62, uh, 63, excuse me, verse 2, as David continues his prayer. He goes on and he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. In other words, David's going back in his mind and he's remembering. He's remembering, I've been in the sanctuary. I've experienced God's power. I've seen his glory. I've had moments in worship that I was so enveloped in his presence where I felt his nearness. And he says, that's what fuels me forward. Have you ever felt like the presence of God has ruined you for anything else? Is that just me? I, you know, if, if we're honest, we all think we're all times, what would I do, you know, if I wasn't a pastor or wasn't, you know, if I just walked away from faith and lived like the rest of the world? And I often say, I've, I'm ruined. Because, no, but honestly, there's a point in your walk with God where you've come too far to ever go back. Amen. You've experienced too much for there ever to be an option B. Why? Because I wouldn't personally know what to do with the God encounters. Like, what do I do with the memory of when God showed up and was so real to me that it was closer than my next breath? What do I do when he spoke a word into my heart and it was revelation that felt like it was tearing me open? What do I do when I experience the joy of the Lord even in sorrow? What do I do with all of that? It's ruined me. Come on. And that's what David is saying. He's saying, I remember your presence. I remember being in your temple. I remember the encounters I've had with you. And remembering those encounters and spending time with God is what always fuels the hunger for more. I heard somebody preach one time. They talked about different levels of Christians and they likened it to people climbing a mountain and they said, you know, when people get saved, one of three things will happen is either they start climbing up the mountain of God and they realize that it's not comfortable and it requires work and it requires obedience, it requires sacrifice, requires discipline and they just give up and quit. Those are the quitter Christians. 
Then there's another group of people who, as they climb up the mountain of God and they, they get up and they get up a little bit and suddenly they can look out and they have a great view and life is convenient there and it's beautiful and it's, it's easy and they just settle. Those are the settler Christians where they, 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 they've climbed, they, they put in some work, they've gotten themselves to a place spiritually, you know, they're, they're not quitting, you know, but, but they're just settled. And then there are those who will never be satisfied for anything less than that mountaintop experience with God. Who looks at the view and says, it's good, but it's not the best. It's comfortable. I know it's colder as we go up, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. I told you before about a coworker that I had many, many years ago. She was a Satan worshiper. And uh, she knew I was a pastor and she's a Satan worshiper, but we became pretty good friends. And one time we had this discussion and she's talking about her satanic worship and and she's, you know, asking about how we worship. And I was just expressing, you know. There are those moments in worship where you just feel like you're just overwhelmed by the power and the presence of God. And she said, you know, I, I think all of that's a mess, but she said, I will say I've never in all of my satanic worship felt anything like you're describing to me. It's a ritual. I didn't lead her to the Lord, but she ended up marrying somebody who went into the army and ended up walking into a mega church down in Tulsa for the purpose of mocking it and making fun of it and ended up getting radically saved and her life turned around. So she finally figured out what I was talking about. I say that to say is I have questions about faith that I don't understand. Things that have happened and, and you know, came to pass in my life that I just can't wrap my mind around and, and justify it with, with what God has said. And I don't know that I ever will on this, this planet. And if I was just going through the motion of religion, come to church, put your money in the plate, leave, go, and not have it be real to me, then I, I couldn't understand why I would keep coming. For what? Come on, somebody. But what holds me are those moments, like David is saying, where I've been in the presence of God. Amen. That I know, that I know, that I know, that I know he's real. Not even If I can't even theologically explain the Trinity to you, it doesn't matter because I've experienced him. Come on. And it's those moments that even when I can't wrap my mind around some theological thing that has the potential to hold me up, I have to be like David and I have to go back and say, but I know I felt him. I know he was there and I know he's real. And if you've never had a God moment experience like that, he's not a respecter of persons and he wants to do it with you and for you. All it takes is for you to lean in a little bit, get a little bit uncomfortable. Press in in your worship. Create some space where it's just you and God. And I promise you, he'll ruin you. He will ruin you.
Many of us have known people in our lives that regardless of what they've walked through, there was a stability about the way they navigated their lives. They weren't easily shaken. There may have been storms raging around them, but they didn't respond to the storm. The storm responded to them. And I bet whoever that person is that you would think of in your mind, I bet if you asked them, you you would find that somewhere they made a, a decision and a commitment to follow God. And beyond that, they, they, they became grounded in his word. They didn't forsake worshiping with God's people. They were committed to the house of God. As David's saying, it's in the sanctuary where I felt his power and his glory that created a foundation for the storm. I love what Warren Worsby says. He says, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. I didn't learn this lesson from practical, eloquent words like this. I learned this lesson by a backhand coming across my face, riding in our 1981 Ford Thunderbird. My mother slammed on the brakes because of a car in front of us. And as mothers do, she put her arm out to hold me back. She yelled, oh, Jesus. And I yelled, oh, something else. <laughs> as quick as the hand went to hold me back, the hand went <laughs> up a little bit. And I, you know, was just a kid, but I pled my case that I was scared, sorry, I, you know, it, it was just startled. And her response has stuck with me all these years. She said, Jim, when you're scared and in crisis, what is in you will always come out of you. And that has always stuck with me. That when life happens, what's in you will always come out of you. Come on, somebody. So what life does to you and brings to the table will depend on what it finds in you. And that's what David is saying. He's saying, I'm on the run again. I'm being chased again. I'm being pursued again. I've lost it all again. But what's in me is a foundation that I found in God. That if everything else gets shaken, I'm going to keep standing. I don't know if you know where the world's headed, but the Bible says that it's not going great places. And if we don't get this as believers, that's why there's a scripture that says, when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Because if we don't get this, we will see the great falling away. We will see people walking away. Why? Because they've gone through religion and experienced religion, and they've never bypassed religion and had that foundational relationship with Jesus Christ that is meant to transform our existence. Come on. We don't have control over the world around us, but we know the one who can deeply, and we can deeply know the one who controls the world around us. So David says, I hunger for God because I've made a commitment. I hunger for God because it's fueled out of my time in the presence of God. And that hunger is compelled by number three, an awareness of God's goodness. An awareness of God's goodness. I I would have a hard time categorizing where David is 
in the writing of this prayer as an experience of the goodness of God. You didn't get the front parking spot and your whole day is ruined. David had his throne taken away by his son, lost everything, and is now in the wilderness for another season of his life, running for his life. And in that, listen to what he says in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What? <laughs> how, can you, how can you say that? How can you believe that, David? I think what David is doing here, he's putting himself through the paces of who God is and not what he's experiencing. You need to know the difference of who God is and what you're experiencing. Because if you think everything you're experiencing is a revelation of who God is, you will always be on the run. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. But their foundation is built on sand and my foundation is built on the rock. All right. He's putting himself on the paces of God's goodness. And that's why he can say your love is better than life. In other words, he's making an assessment. He's doing an evaluation. He's making an appraisal of just how valuable God's presence and God's person actually are. And when he begins to do that, he begins to realize, well, it's better than position. I could really use a gourmet cooked meal, but it's, his love's better than that. I would really like to sleep in my kingly chambers tonight, but his love is still better. Do you see what he's doing? He's not looking at where he is and evaluating his current situation on the goodness of God. He's looking at God and he's elevating his expectation to the goodness of God. That's a whole different thing. He's looking at God and saying, this is who you are. This is what you're worth. This is your nature and your character. And because I have that, I will elevate my expectation to your goodness and your love regardless of circumstance. So he says, because your love is better than life, that's how my lips can praise you. I don't praise you because of what you give to me. I praise you because of who you are. That was a big key right there. Because the American church has sold us a lie that God is a genie in the bottle. And if you lift your hands right and pray right and fast right and do all the things right, he'll grant you whatever wishes you desire. That's not God. We praise him because it's who he is, not what he can give. We praise him because he went and died on a cross and shed his blood and bled and died and went down to Hades and rendered Satan helpless and defeated for life. He removed the sting of death so that when you die and leave this people planet, you will never know the flames of hell. But you will close your eyes and awaken in the glory and the presence of God. He died and he came and he did all of that. And that's why he's good. Not good based on his ability to get you a Lexus. He's good based on his ability to bring you redeeming life. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, but that's all right. 
because I've experienced the goodness of God. I know he's good. I know he's faithful. I praise him because he's better than life. There's nothing better than him in this universe. I told you, my mama used to tell me when the end comes, the Bible says that one day his, this whole world will be destroyed with fire. So sometimes you got to remind yourself it's all going to burn anyway. It's all going to burn anyway. So as we appraise God's value, we get a sense of his goodness and his depth. And that'll move you into hunger. That'll move you out of a pity party and into hunger real quick. There's one thing I would say to some of us today as we finish up this talk about hunger. Maybe someone today showed up because you felt like it's the right thing to do. Maybe you showed up online because you felt like it was the right thing to do that, you know, I should probably watch church. And you're here or you're watching, but yet you recognize that there's an absence of this hunger that I'm talking about. Pastor, I hear all that and it sounds great, but I just don't feel hungry. I'm a pastor, but I've gone through many seasons where I have not felt hungry. Where I felt like another church service, another worship night, more prayer. And anytime I'm in a season like that, it's easy to say, well, you know, God just pulled back from me a little bit. He has got that ceiling over me. But I've always found it's on my end. Not God's. But here's what I would say to you and I, if you're in a season like that. An absence of hunger sometimes indicates a limited menu. It often indicates a limited menu. You know, when you go through McDonald's, you have your kid's menu. And typically what's on there is chicken nuggets cheeseburger, some other places you can get some macaroni and cheese or a hot dog. One of the ways you realize your kid's growing up is when your son says, Dad, can I get the 10 piece? And you're like, no, you have to stay small forever. And you're getting a four piece. But I say that to say is when you're a kid, man, the hot dog sounds great. Our second to youngest, Loretta, just, you know, the onion toddlers go through this, but she's having a difficult time eating anything but the two things that she likes, which happens to be bread and graham crackers. <laughs> so, you know, we send her to daycare and we, we put healthy food options and, you know, nice things in there, but we make sure we put bread and graham crackers because she's not the kind that's like, oh, I guess I'll just eat it. Then she just won't eat. And then, you know, then you feel like you have the teacher looking at you like, what are you doing, you know? But we know they, they, they outgrow that. But there's, she's in a season of life where bread and graham crackers is all she needs. It's satisfying to her. It's appealing to her. When you're a kid, the kid's menu sounds good. But something happens is as you start to grow, suddenly the four-piece just doesn't hit like it used to hit. And you find yourself wanting more. Hold on, listen. 
you find yourself wanting more. But if you're not living on purpose, you keep going back to the four piece and substituting with other things. Church was good. I remember when I first got saved, we were radical, praising. It was so good. But now I need more. Now I need more. So you know what else? I'll, I'll do this thing over here, and I'll fill my time with that. And, and, you know, and, yeah, and again, not that we can't have interests outside of church. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm talking about that, that place with God. And, and suddenly, we begin to fill that void with other things versus realizing I'm growing as a believer. Therefore, I have to now pull away from the four-piece and have to learn, like Paul said, I have to move away from the milk and learn how to eat a little bit of steak. When I'm dissatisfied and it feels like I don't want to do it anymore, and it feels like I want to give up and I want to quit. Could it be that it's actually because you have outgrown the current season that you're in, but you're still feasting like it's the old season? But God's saying, if you want to enter the land where I've called you to live, you got to learn to feast on what you need to survive in the land where I'm taking you to. You will always have to feast on, on the substance to, to walk before. You have to feast on it before you can walk into it. Are you with me? We don't buy our kids shoes based off of where they are. I always get them a little bit big. Why? Because I don't want to buy them again in a week. I got to create some space to grow. So oftentimes when you're dissatisfied and you don't feel hungry and you feel like you've just plateaued in your faith as a believer and you don't want to do church and it's not exciting anymore, what you don't need is another quote on social media. What you need is a pastor to tell you, get in the word, press into God. It's because you're growing spiritually. But if you don't lean in and grow more, you're going to be stuck where you are. All right. So oftentimes when our appetite just isn't there, I'll say this, it is God pulling away, but it's more of God stepping, saying this way, this way, come on, like calling your little dog, come on, this way, not that God's calling you that, but you understand what I'm saying, come on, the Israelites, come on, I've got a land flowing with milk and honey, just, just follow my voice, follow the cloud, So spiritually, we can graduate from where we are and go into a next season. And that's the thing. You know, as, as humans, we, we have those markers, you know. Up until the age of 16, I lived for 16. I, I do not understand for the life of me when I talk to young people and they're like 20 and they don't have a license yet. Like, what is, I don't understand how, what happened. Like, from the day I was like eight and realized that one day I will drive. It was a big countdown, and the day I got my license, I pulled up, dropped my mom off, and I'm out. Why? You want that independence. We have that marker. The day you turn 18 and, and you know, government-wise, you, you, you become an adult. You have those markers in life, but sometimes spiritually, we just think, well, we got saved somewhere, and now we're done. And you're not tracking where you are. You're not tracking what you've grown in, what you understand, what you know. What maturity level am I at right now? Where are some areas I need to grow and develop? And I know I got to move on. Team, you can come. <clears throat> so if you're not hungry today, maybe it's because you're coming to church or you're coming into God's word or you're coming into prayer, but you're expecting the same thing that you've always eaten. 
and it just doesn't satisfy anymore. So God wants to stir your appetite today. We're always hungry, church. Sometimes we're just feasting on the wrong things. Number four, I won't hang here long, but hunger produces enjoyment of God. Verse four, David says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. C.S. Lewis wrote that as a young Christian, I want you to understand, as a young Christian, young meaning he didn't stay there, he got a new revelation, it used to bother him that as he would read God's word, he would kept seeing references to God commanding people to praise him, like praise me my people, or worship the Lord in the sanctuary, lift your voice, lift your hands. And it said it bothered him that God was constantly asking people to praise him. And he thought for a minute, God seems a little, you know, egocentric here about himself. But later on in his life, he was reflecting on the Psalms, and here's what he wrote. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consumption, consumption, excuse me. It is not out of, uh, <clears throat> I lost my spot. Oh, excuse me, it's not out of that compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author or be able and not be able to tell anybody how good he is. Or to come suddenly at a turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then, not, and then have to keep silent and find no one to share it with. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And I loved his writing on that because it is so true. We don't praise God out of obligation. We praise him because it's the fulfillment of our hunger. It's the natural response that when you find something, it consumes you to tell everybody about it. I have often said if we could just tell be as excited about telling people about God as we are about, you know, the latest thing that we bought. Man, the gospel would spread around the world. So God wants to stir our hunger and to cause us to go more wholeheartedly after him. So I say this to you, church, in closing, stand to your feet. share and what we believe God's doing with us as a church and where he wants to take us as a church. And all of this is in preparation for that. So I think it's December 17th or the week before that. I don't know. 10th. Thanks, Paula. Um, but that Sunday we'll share what God wants to do through Hope City in this next year, this upcoming year. But all of this is leading up to that because I've become just dissatisfied with my experience with God. 
I've become dissatisfied with our congregational experience with God. You might say, what did I do something wrong? Is he mad? No. Is that I've just come to know that there's more. There's more. And we can stay where we are and be comfortable. And we all will bury each other and leave nothing for a next generation. Or we can shake ourselves from our lethargy and rise up and say, I need to become hungry again after God. Which means I need to be uncomfortable. Which means I need to press in in my worship. Which means I have to make prayer a priority. Which means I better know this book in and out. I better know what it says about every situation that I face. Come on, somebody. So I submit this message to you today as a seed of self-evaluation. Where in your life have you become dissatisfied? Has it been going through the motions? I just dare submit. It's not that God's mad at you. It's that, he, it's that He's trying to bring you into more. He's not pushing you away. He's pulling you close. And I want us to lean into that this year. Amen.